Hey, this is Jared Wellman. I'm the lead pastor at Tate Springs, and this is our podcast. God is telling a story of hope and redemption. Hope and redemption. Redemption that can only be found through Jesus Christ. I hope that this is a blessing and inspires you to discover your part in God's story. Welcome to Tate Springs. We are so glad that you're here. Go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word with me. Turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8 is where we are going to be this morning. And as you're turning there, I brought something with me. Um, I brought an ant farm. How many of you guys had an ant farm growing up? Uh, now, they built their, uh, their tunnels in the back here. I got this for Bethany uh, for Christmas. And so you get the ant farm, you get the sand, and then you have to order the ants. And it takes a few weeks uh, for them to come in. They actually came in this past week, which was uh, perfect for this sermon. And, uh, and so we, we put the ants in here. These are worker ants. And, and uh, they are um, they're ants that come in. I can't remember the name of the company, but uh, you put them in here and they go straight to work. They come in these little vials and they just start digging, you know, and uh, you feed them and you water them. And so we set it all up and then we all just kind of sat there and watched them. And, uh, and it was fascinating uh, day after day watching them move dirt around and do all the things that, it, that ants do. And, uh, and then I started to think to myself, you guys are so dumb is what I was thinking to those ants. Because I just thought, you know, they're just, they're just kind of existing and uh, they're just moving dirt around and there's really no point to anything they're doing. In fact, the, the tunnels here, they've dug all the way to the bottom of the plastic and now they're just kind of going back up. And, uh, and the reason that, that, that I thought that way is because when you get these ants in this context of an ant farm, they are an ant colony without a queen. And, uh, and so without a queen, there's no way for ants to be reproduced. And so they just are, are living in this container, eating their food, drinking their water, digging tunnels, and then they're just going to die. And that's just going to be the end. And, uh, and I think that's a really kind of a sad, sad life. And so at one point, even I was, I was trying to water them. And I don't know what's going on. There's a big cluster here. They're just kind of like coming together. But at one point, I poured water in here and it kind of collapsed one of their tunnels and they all rushed there. And they started to, to, to immediately try to move the sand uh, out. And they did it pretty quickly. And, and I was looking at this and I started to think about Romans 8. Because in Romans chapter 8, what we have here is a, is a verse that has to do with what God is doing in our lives when we experience trials and suffering. And the reality is, sometimes we look at our life the way that I was looking at this ant farm. We look at our life and we wonder, what is the purpose of this tunnel being collapsed in my life right now? Why did this thing happen to me, God? And we don't understand it and we, don't make, and we can't make sense of it. And then what happens is we begin to lose hope because we feel like our lives are without purpose. And, uh, and we feel like we are living in an ant farm and God might just be a kid with an ant farm and there's no hope and there's no meaning and there's no purpose. But our passage today provides a context for us. It provides a different perspective, which is this. The scriptures provide a completely different picture of your life than this right here. A completely different picture. It paints a picture of your life that is of a divine narrative that God is writing where every struggle has meaning, where every pain has a purpose and every moment is enveloped in the love of God. And so the reality this morning is this, is that our lives are not a series of random, meaningless events, but part of a greater, 
divinely orchestrated plan where everything that might seem aimless is actually being woven into something quite beautiful in the story of God. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's that in a world of uncertainty, one thing is sure, that we are loved and that we are purposed by God. So in a world full of uncertainty, there's one thing that we can be sure about today, that you are loved and that you are purposed by God. So let's dig into this text to see what God, uh, what God is telling us today. I want you to first look with me at verse 28 of Romans chapter 8. It says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this is the thesis verse. In other words, this is the point. This is the main thing Paul wants us to understand. And everything else that we're going to read today is really an explanation to help us understand what it means that God causes all things to work together for good for us. And so, the, again, the, the background of this verse is verse 18, which we looked at recently. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time, Paul says... And so he's making an argument to help us make sense of all the sufferings, of all the trials, of all the tribulations that happen in our life. How are we to make sense of these things? If God is who he says he is, if he really loves us, if, if he really is sovereign and all the things that God says of himself, then why do these bad things tend to happen to people who have confessed Jesus as Lord? We've all asked this in one, in one way or another. I remember, I've told you this story before, but I remember when I broke my nose, which is why it has this this hump on it. I did something my dad told me not to do. He was umping a baseball game and he said, whatever you do, Jared, don't go over and play baseball with these older kids. So he goes and he umps the game. And what do I do? I go and play baseball with the older kids. And so was this big kid cranks the ball to right field and I lose it in the sun. It wasn't because I couldn't catch the ball, y'all. It was because I lost it in the sun and it nails me in the face. And, uh, and so I remember my mom was taking me to the doctor and I said, mom, why do bad things happen to good people? <laughs> And she's like, she just starts, you know, she's like, uh, you're not as good as you think you are kind of thing, you know. And so that's, so the idea is that, you know, when suffering and trials and tribulations happen, the background of this text is this and what ultimately what, what, what God wants us to understand is that there actually is a purpose to all the things that are happening. And so look at the word causes there with me in verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. In the Greek, this is the present active indicative. Now, that's just a fancy way of saying that this is a word that means it's continuous. It's a word that means it is active. And it's a word that means that God is intentional. In other words, God is not accidental about causing all things to work together. God's not just in heaven watching your life unfold and saying, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Well, maybe, I'll, maybe I can maybe turn that into something good. No, God is actively and intentionally and continuously involved in all the things that are happening, working them out for your good. And this is most evident in the word together. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good. That means that every single thing that is happening is actually connected. It's not just happening in a vacuum. It is connected to work together for your good. Now, often in life, uh, things can feel disconnected. And so I have this picture for you that I wanna put up just of a bunch of dots. This is a zoomed in version of a painting a zoomed-in version of a painting. And, uh, and so when you look at this perspective, all you see, this is called pointillism in, in, in uh, painting. And when you see this, all you see are these dots. And, uh, and this picture in and of itself is not going to be hung in any art museum. It just looks random. It looks chaotic even. It looks meaningless. 
But whenever you zoom out from this, this part of the painting, then what we have is something quite different. You have a beautiful painting that actually shows a picture with a purpose, with a meaning. And, uh, and so this is a painting by George Surratt from 1890 uh, called the, the Canal on the Grave Lines. And, and, uh, and so this is a painting that has, uh, is, is a popular painting and, and it shows all of these little dots that whenever you're zoomed in, they seem like they don't make any sense. But whenever you zoom out and you see all of the dots into the context of the whole picture, then what comes into our perspective is that it's actually not meaningless, but the dots are being caused to work together for the good of the painting that ultimately tells a story. And so what we have here is the idea that our life's meaning is not a mystery. It is a masterpiece painted by God's knowing hand. And so when we look at this phrase that God is causing all things to work together for good, what we have to understand is this. We have to understand that, yes, it's true that God has the ability, and more than having the ability, he actually is always acting on that ability to cause all things to work together for your good. But there's a really important thing for us to understand here. There are two qualifications that must apply to your life if you want that to be true. In other words, if causing all things to work together for good is a job, you have to have two things on your resume. And if one of these things is not on your resume, then you're not qualified for the job, which actually means that your life, you're acting like one of these ants in this ant farm, just moving around chairs on the Titanic, or really in the ant farm, moving around dirt in an ant farm. And listen, that is not what God wants for your life. So there are two qualifications that our text give us, give us, gives us that tells us, here are the things that must apply to your life in order for God to be uh, actively working all things out for good. And the first one is this, it's there in verse 28. To those who love God, that's the first qualification. So if you don't love God, then all things are not being caused to work out for your good. And the second thing is this, to those who are called according to his purpose. To those who are called according to his purpose. So these are very important, very important. And the rest of the passage, the good news is the rest of the passage actually unpacks it for us and tells us what these two qualifications mean. And so uh, the first one that we're going to look at is what does it mean to be called according to God's purpose? This is a big theological one, by the way. So here's our second point in the message, that our purpose in suffering is anchored in God's providence of salvation. Your purpose in suffering is anchored in God's providence of salvation. And so we're talking about some deep stuff here in these next two verses. But Paul has a shovel, and he's going to dig down to the very bedrock for us, not just to tell us the what of salvation, but he wants us to understand the how and the why of salvation. So look with me at verses 29 and 30. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And so this is called, often called, the golden chain of salvation. The golden chain of salvation. And it's not costume jewelry that we're talking about. We're talking about solid gold. This is the real deal. And it starts before the clock of time began. It starts before the words in the beginning were written. 
this golden chain of salvation. It starts with God Almighty. So let's look at these words and just kind of walk through them. The first word that Paul gives us is this. Remember, we're talking about the qualification of what it means to be called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew. What does it mean to be foreknown? Well, this is something that was happening before time began. And it has to do with a relational knowledge that God has with you before time began. This is different than an observational uh, or an uh, intellectual knowledge. And so, you know, you guys saw earlier, I'm sure, if you didn't, then uh, you were probably far in the back. But Justice, you know, my three-year-old was running, giving me goldfish and then coming back and then giving me his uh, small group project and then coming back. And, uh, And the reason he's doing that is because he's three. But there also, the reason also he was doing that is because he saw his dad and he has a relational knowledge with me. And so for him, the context is not that, oh, I'm in a church that is inappropriate. I should not be running back and forth during worship. For him, he saw someone that he has a relationship with and that's all that mattered. Now, before time began, God is said to have a foreknowledge of you. And that is not just an observational language where God is looking at you in a crowd and just knowing you as if just knowing a crowd as if you're in a basketball game where Luka Doncic has scored 73 points. It's not that. It is that God knows you where he could, in, in the point where he doesn't matter what the crowd is doing or thinking. God has this relationship with you that can go out on the court. And it would be as if Luca called me after the game and said, hey, bro, did you see that I scored 73 points tonight? It's that kind of relational knowledge. And that's, that's intimate. And that is amazing when you begin to think that God, the creator of the universe, has that kind of knowledge. The second word that he gives us here in verse 29 is not only that he foreknows us, but that he predestines us. Now, this is a big church word that means that not only does God know you relationally, but that he has a plan for your life. He has a plan for your life. Here at Taste Springs, we always say it this way, that he has a story and that he wants you to be a part of it. That's what this word predestined means. And so it's not just any plan, it's a plan to shape you into the image of Christ. Look with me at verse 30, or in verse 22, in the second part, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, And so predestined is connected in this chain to the idea that God's desire is to conform you, to shape you into the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus being the first to be risen from the dead, this is kind of a glimpse into where this chain is going, which is glorification. And then the third link in this chain is there in verse 30, which is the word called. And this is really the catch. The catch is that you're not holding on to God. God is holding on to you in this chain. And it's about how he's already holding on to you because he predestined us, because he, because he foreknew us. And so because he foreknew us and because he predestined us, he ends up calling us on the phone, in other words. And so when he calls us on the phone, we, we don't really have a choice but just to kind of pick it up and answer because we see that God Almighty is calling us and we pick up the phone and we answer. And that's what the idea of calling is. We cannot help but answer the phone. And when we answer, that's when justification happens, which is when God stamps righteous on our rap sheet. The long list of things that, that, that God would have against us that says, well, I can't let you into heaven because of this and I can't let you into heaven because of that. No, because he foreknew us, because he predestined us, because he calls us and because the call was answered, He justifies you. 
and he justifies us and he stamps righteous. And because of all those things, it leads us to that last step in the chain, which is in verse 30, which is that he also glorifies you. But I want you to notice, which glorification is something that happens in the future. It is the, the resurrection of the body. It's a thing that, that he was hinting at in verse 29 when he says, Jesus is the firstborn. And so Jesus is the one to first come back from the dead and to never die again. And so whenever we are foreknown, when we are predestined, when we are called, when we are justified, you will ultimately be glorified. You cannot remove one link from the chain. And so that glorification is something that is going to happen in the future, but he writes it as if it has already happened in the past. Look at it, glorified. In fact, he uses the past tense in every single one of these when he's applying it to those who have been called according to God's purpose. And that's because when God foreknew you, it is in the past, it's as good as if it has already happened in the future, including your glorification. That's the powerful uh, language that God is giving us here when he's talking about this golden chain of salvation. Now listen, some of us look at these words and to be quite honest, theologically, this can get sticky in some churches and with some believers. Why? I think it's because we live in a very autonomous culture we live in a very pro-choice culture, my body, my choice, my ideas, my life. I'm, it's me, 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 to, Toby Keith theology. I want to talk about me. I want to talk about my, how's he go, me, oh my, something like that. That's, that's the kind of theology we tend to have, but we want to be in the driver's seat. But the fact is, church, we're not even very good backseat drivers. And so it's actually a very good thing that God is the one who's in the driver's seat for us. And so what Paul wants us to understand is that we need to trust him and his plan, even if we can't see it and even if we can't understand it. We need to trust that God is fully sovereign and that he's the one who's in control. Now, I brought uh, something else with me today. I brought my, uh, my girl's sewing kit. So I was gonna do a little sewing for you this morning, I thought, and, uh, and whip something up here. So let me grab a needle and uh, some thread. And I was gonna pull something together to illustrate this, uh, this point for you here. And voila, I'm done. I know that was quick, but here we go. So I, I whipped this up and uh, this is a picture, a tapestry of a tree. It's pretty simple. We see the picture on the front and I did a really good job on this, didn't I? I mean, it's really pretty. And, and, and the reality is we live on this side of heaven. We live on this side of heaven. We do, I think we can all agree that we don't live on the other side of heaven right now. Because we live on this side of heaven, this is typically what we see of God's tapestry. We don't see the beautiful picture. We see this side. And this side isn't as pretty, is it? This side has all this cross-stitching. Steve Jobs would not like this, by the way, if you've ever understood, read his biography. This is just haphazard looking. And so we see this side, we see the struggles and we see the suffering and we see the problems and we see the lines going this way and we see the lines going that way. And, and, it, and it discourages us because, because what we wanna do is we wanna have this kind of understanding. And Paul talks a lot about this in his letters to the churches. So the same questions that you're asking today are the same theological questions that believers were asking back in the day. And by the way, we are going to unpack this next week in Romans 9, 10, and 11 with what Paul talks about when we're trying to wrap our minds around our meaningful choices and God's sovereignty. Paul doesn't leave us without an answer for that. But the reality is, is, is this, that, that Paul wants us to understand that as we are thinking about our problems and our suffering, 
we need to understand that they do not exist outside of the fact that we are anchored in God's providence. And if we are anchored in God's providence, then we do not live in an ant farm. And if we don't live in an ant farm, then it means our lives are not meaningless and our lives are not purposeless. And it means that all the things that tend to happen, that, that God is indeed working them all out for our good. Our purpose in suffering is anchored in God's providence of salvation. This is what he means when he says the qualification to those who are called according to his purpose. And the reality is the scriptures tell us that God desires that all men might be saved. And so sometimes we get caught up in the, in the question of, well, what does this mean for me? Am I, you know, does this mean that I'm not called? Am I not called? Listen, if you're here and you are listening to the words of the gospel, God desires for you to be saved. All you need to understand is that God is sovereign and he desires all men to be saved. And there are some things that we cannot quite comprehend on this side of heaven. And I frankly am quite content with that. That's the difference between God and me, by the way, is that God has all knowledge and I don't. And the moment that we think that, there, that we have to, tr- to, to grasp a hold of everything is the moment that we fail to, to understand verses like Deuteronomy 29, 29, that says that there are some secret things that belong to the Lord and that it belongs to him right now. And we, right now we only see in part, but one day we'll be on the other side of heaven and we will be able to see the total picture. And so this, these are the two things that Paul has kind of laid down for us. The third and final point is this, that in the certainty of God's design, our lives find a purpose that adversity cannot unsettle. So in the certainty of God's design, our lives find a purpose that adversity cannot unsettle. And this is the second qualification, which means to those who love God. So again, on your resume this morning, what you need to be asking yourself is this, am I qualified? Am I qualified for all things to be working out together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose? The second thing that we have here is this, is what does it mean to be one of those who love God? Paul is going to get practical for us. So if we wanna kind of hang out in the theological realm, we can do that, but Paul doesn't do that in this part of this passage. He begins to apply it to our lives to help us understand what this means. So what he does is he gives us three questions and three answers that have to do with the second qualification of those who love God. And, And in other words, this is a major point, Are we going to trust what God says about himself and about this passage or not? So here's the first one. Look with me at verses 31 and 32. The first question he asks, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, what he means by this is not that he's not saying that things won't come against you. Things will continue to come against you. What he's saying is that the things that come against you will be so puny that it will be as if they cannot come against you or are not coming against you. And you may think, well, Pastor Jared, the things that are coming against me seem pretty big. Let me put it into context for you. First thing is, and I know I'm gonna lose some of you here, but some of you I'll I'll gain. So if this doesn't resonate with you, we'll keep going. Hopefully we'll pick you up along the way. But if you've ever seen any of the comic book, the Marvel movies, there's this character called Ant-Man. All right, I know that sounds silly. His character is silly. That's kind of part of his shtick. And so in the first Ant-Man movie, um, he is a character and his superpower is he can shrink down like to the size of an ant, but he still has the strength of a grown man kind of thing. So if you think, you know, you're that small, but you, you can do a lot of damage because people can't see you. Well, there's this funny scene in the movie where he shrinks down against his arch nemesis, Yellow Jacket, and as a movie watcher, you're watching this fierce battle take place, and they're in a child's 
uh, playroom, by the way, with this train that's going around. And so they're on this train and it's, you know, it's choo-chooing all around the railroad tracks and it's super intense as you're watching it. But then it scales back and you don't see them fighting. You just see the choo-choo train, a kid's choo-choo train going. And it's a really humorous event because it's super intense when you're right there in front of it. But when you scale back, you realize, wow, this isn't as intense as these two characters are making it out to be. That's the image that Paul is giving us here. And if you don't believe me, look with me at what he says in verse 32. He says, what then shall we say to these things of God is for us, who is against us? How can he say this? Well, because of verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, how, us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Let me tell you what he means by that. What he's saying is that there are a lot of things that seem so big, like, like mountains in front of us. That when we're up close, we look at those things and they are so big and they are so mighty and they are so strong that we don't think that we could ever overcome those things. But listen, when you put those things into the context of God's creation, here's the biggest, baddest thing that has ever come against you. Death. And the way you earn death is from your sins. And the bad news is that all of us are sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, which means that all of us have earned death. And because all of us have earned death, this means the biggest, baddest, strongest, angriest mountain in front of us is that we will die. And not only will we die, but we will remain eternally dead and separated from a holy God. I want you to notice what he says here in verse 32. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for who? For us all. For us all. He delivered Jesus over to death on your behalf so that even though you will physically die, you have the chance of not spiritually dying. And that is the greatest problem in the history of mankind, spiritual death. It's not taxes, it's not financial issues, it's not emotional issues or psychological issues or mental issues or anything like that. It is spiritual issues. And what we have here is a solution, which is that, well, if God is for you in that way, which we just learned that he is because he, he has this whole plan sorted out before we, were even, uh, before we were even created. And he's already solved that by Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And so anything that can come against you is really just this puny ant that cannot really do any damage to you, in other words. That's the first reality. The second one is, is in verses 33 and 34 when he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So he gives us a legal analogy. So consider with me for a minute that you're in a courtroom and, and there is this prosecutor who is just kind of listing all these things against you. And you're listening to these things and you're saying, well, I forgot that I did that. Yeah, that was really bad. Oh man, I forgot all about that one too. Man, that one was horrendous. And you're listening to this, this list of things that are being leveled against you in a courtroom and you're just like, yeah, I'm a terrible person. I have no chance. I have no hope. This prosecutor is right. And you look at the judge and the judge happens to be God Almighty himself. And God is there and he listens to everything and he gives you a verdict that is the opposite of what you would think it would be. He doesn't say guilty, he says righteous. Why? Because he looks at the defense attorney that he has assigned to you and it's none other than Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus is the one who says, I'll take the blame of all the things that that prosecutor just said, and I'll put them on my own life. And because of that, the penalty has been paid. And not only do we have a judge in front of us that is rendering us 
free from this guilt, but we have a defense attorney that has taken the blame for us. Why? Because you see, it's not the accusations themselves or even who's making them. It is the one who's got the authority in the courtroom. And church, let me tell you, the one who has the authority in the courtroom is God himself. That's why we don't want to hold on to our own autonomy, but we would rather hold on to a sovereign God who, by the way, is the one who's truly holding on to us. When we get that out of order, we misunderstand the sovereignty of God. It's a good thing that God foreknows us. It's a great thing that God predestines us. It's a great thing that God calls us. It's a wonderful thing that he justifies us. It's a glorious thing that he glorifies us. So who can bring a charge against God's elect? Well, no one. The idea is that people can act against you, but that they can actually not be against you. They can say things about you and they may even be right. But in the sovereignty of God, by his grace applied to your life, they may be right, but the conclusion that they want cannot be applied to your life because of what Jesus has done for you. That's the second thing. The third thing really begins to help us to understand what it means for this qualification to those who love God. Look with me at verse 35 of the first part. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? So this is a question that tests the strength of our faith. What will separate us from the love of Christ? I want you to imagine with me that you are standing in the middle of a hurricane and uh, this hurricane is, is kind of whirling around you and, and everything that is not anchored and tethered to the ground begins to just fly all around. That's what life sometimes feels like for us. Everything that's not tied down is tossed around and it seems like nothing can withstand the storm. And the question then becomes, can the tempest that happens in life, anything that comes against us, can it untether us from the love of God? Is there anything in this world that once God says, I love you, is there anything that can untether that that happens in this life? He even quotes Psalm 44, which is a quote from the Israelites who were called of God as a nation, who were experiencing some trials and tribulations, and who said, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. They were calling out to God saying, God, why is this happening? Have you forgotten us? Have we lost your love? But here's the twist. God's telling us that these storms, these butchers that are waving around their knives, wanting to cut the cord from God and us, he's saying it's impossible. He's telling us it cannot happen. And this is where it gets real for us because Paul isn't saying that we are stormproof. Don't misunderstand what he's saying. We feel the wind, we feel the soaking up to the bone, but what he's saying is that the love of Christ is our anchor and it's stronger than any hurricane that can be thrown against us. And the love of Christ doesn't prevent the storm, but it does something far better. It holds us steady in the middle of it. That's what he means here when he's asking this question. And so love is the key. And so whenever he lists all these things for us here, he says, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, anything and everything that could ever happen against us, can any of these things untether us from the love of God? And the answer is unequivocally no. Love is the key here. God's love is the, the cord that connects us to him, his love for us, and there is nothing, there are no scissors that are strong enough to cut that. I want you to notice in verse 39, the last verse, he gives another list of things. I'm convinced that neither death in verse 38, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to do what? Say it, separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
There's nothing. Absolutely nothing. That is God's love for you in Christ. Now go back to verse 28. The qualification is to those who love God. So you have this coin and you have two sides of the coin. You have God's love for you in Christ and then you have your love for God. How do those things come together? First John 4 tells us that the reason we are able to love God is why? Because he first loved us. We could not reciprocate any kind of love to God if he first did not love us before the foundations of the world and then applied through the work and ministry and life of Jesus Christ in time and in history. He not only loves you enough to foreknow you before the foundation of the world, he loves you enough to apply that love in the most sacrificial way possible through Jesus Christ. There's no act of love that is greater than that. And so when we love God because we have acknowledged that he loved us, that makes us qualified to live a life where all the things that we go through have a meaning and a purpose that is part of the great divine narrative that God is telling. Now, Paul, he isn't finished. He tells us that he doesn't merely want us to grasp these things in such a way theologically where we just understand in our heads that, yeah, God loves me, that's incredible, and we go on our way. But he wants us to be confident and to live confidently in this. He wants us to live confidently in this. So when he says that we are not merely, notice he says we are not merely conquerors of these things in verse 37, but he gives us an adverb to qualify the word conquer, and he says we overwhelmingly conquer. So we're not just conquerors because of what God has done. We overwhelmingly conquer. And so it, 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 if, if the game of life is this game, it's not merely that we, we get by by a last second field goal. It's that we overwhelmingly conquer death, that they don't even put a point on the scoreboard. And if possible, maybe even they have negative points on the scoreboard. That's what Paul is telling us here. And the tension point is this though for us. How do we get this confidence? How do we live confidently? Because quite frankly, when all we see are those little pointillism dots, and we don't see the big picture. When all we see is that cross-stitching on the back and we don't see the tree, how can we live confidently? Because let me tell you, church, when I have things that go on in my life, it's really hard to hold on. It's really hard to hold on and to say, God, I, you know, I'm not seeing the whole picture here, but all I'm seeing are things that seem to contradict the picture. How are we to live confidently? It's actually a really simple answer. It's really hard to implement sometimes, but it's a really simple answer. And it's this, are we going to trust what God has told us in his word or not? When we don't see what God is up to, are we still going to believe the words that he has given us? Because what he tells us in 828 is this, hey, listen, if you love me and if you're called according to my purpose, in other words, if you're saved and you love me, then all the things that are happening are working out. I'm in control and I'm working them all out. It's gonna hurt the storms are going to come. It's not going to make sense. It's going to knock you off the, the rocker. But listen, just know that I am still on my throne. Are we going to believe that or not? That's the question Paul is putting before us today. Tony Evans says this, if all you see is what you see, you do not see all there is to be seen. All we see sometimes is that cross-stitching on the back and it looks messy. So the real question is, am I going to trust in only what I can see or am I going to trust in what God has revealed. Romans 8, 28 through 39, it's the spiritual binoculars that God is handing us. 
And he's asking us to look at life through these binoculars and, to, and that it's going to clear up the vision to see things in a different kind of light, to see things in a different kind of perspective. And so we need to worry about how we can get this kind of perspective because Paul is challenging us to a confidence that doesn't come from circumstances we can see, but promises that we have heard from God. And so when the plan is hidden, when the purpose is not poking its head out, the question is, are we going to believe what God has said about himself or not? That leads us back to our sermon in a sentence, which is this, that in a world of uncertainty, there is one thing that's sure, that we are loved and we are purposed from God. So as we close, let me reverse engineer the golden chain for just a second. So if we don't love God, remember, we love because he first loved us. If we don't love God, then that's evidence that we are not acting in accordance to being called according to his purpose. And if we aren't called according to his purpose, then we don't have a purpose for our suffering. And without a purpose for our suffering, we are an ant colony without a queen, just moving around dirt for no reason at all until we die. But listen, you are not an ant in an ant farm. You are a human being made in the image of God. And you are not an ant colony without a queen. You are a human being with a king, with the king of kings. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he died for you. And that gives your life meaning and it gives it purpose. So I don't know what you're going through right now. Some of us have been hit hard by the storms of life. I want you to believe what God has said about himself today. To grasp onto the God that is holding on to you. And so some of us feel like we're in a loveless marriage with the Lord. Let me tell you, God has never stopped loving you. He's never stopped loving you. Not only has he never stopped loving you, but there's nothing that can separate his love from you, even yourself. Once that love is applied by the grace of God, there's nothing that can separate you from that. That's what Paul is telling us here. And if that's you right now, if you're someone who has professed Jesus as Lord and Savior in your life at some point, and you feel like that your life has just kind of entered into this loveless relationship with the Lord, Maybe it's time for you to renew your vows. The way you do that is this response song that we have at the end of the message. This altar is open for you to come to bend your knee and to do business with the Lord, to not leave this place without talking to the Lord and saying, Lord, I've, I've had a hard time believing what you've said about yourself. I can't see your plan, but I'm gonna trust, I'm gonna trust your heart. I'm gonna believe what you said this morning. Just say that simple prayer to the Lord. Just say that simple prayer to the Lord. Now, if you're here and you've never trusted the Lord, if you've never trusted him as Lord of your life, once you understand he's Lord, whether you believe it or not, and he does love you, he sent Jesus to die for all people. So consider today the decision to reciprocate that love for you by trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's something you wanna do. Then we have a very simple thing that we ask you to do, which is to go to tatesprings.com and click this button. that says, I wanna know more about Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for your goodness, for your love for us. And today, Lord, we want to pray that um, you would help us as we respond to your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to just trust that you are sovereign, that you are good, and that you love us, and that you give us the gift of grace. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to just hold on tightly to the things that you've shown us, that, that you are holding on tightly to us. And for those of us who feel like, Lord, our relationship with you has become loveless. I pray, Lord, that we would not leave here without doing business with you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.